0: Hi there! This is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast, and I am your host, Shane Phillips. Each episode, we discuss a different housing research paper with its author, translating it into non-academic language to better understand the challenges and potential solutions to the housing crisis. Pavo Mankanen is my host today, and our guest is Professor Hayden Shelby at the University of Cincinnati. Our interview is about slum upgrading and community finance and ownership in Bangkok, Thailand, where Professor Shelby spent several years doing on-the-ground research with both community organizations and governmental or quasi-governmental agencies. I think this is our first episode about housing policy in a country with a developing economy, so we're excited to try something new this week. The subject of our conversation today is a program called Ban Man Kong, which translates to secure housing in Thai. The program's goal is to help residents of informal settlements or slums to form communities and access government-subsidized financing that can be used to improve their homes and provide the security that comes with legal ownership recognized by the state. Ban Mankong is much studied and much celebrated around the world, and it deserves to be lauded for helping more than 100,000 households in the 20 years that it's existed. Professor Shelby's paper interested us in part because it isn't merely celebratory and instead offers what she calls a sympathetic critique of the program. A lot of our conversation is focused on the difference between using state authority to empower residents on the one hand and offloading state responsibilities onto poor residents on the other. She puts it very succinctly when she says that the program, quote, blurs the boundaries between radical alternatives to the market and neoliberal alternatives to the state. And that fuzzy distinction is something I think we can also see to different extents in programs like community land trusts and Tenant Opportunity to Purchase programs here in the states and elsewhere. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. If you want to help the show, give us a five-star rating and a review on your favorite podcast app, and be sure to tell your friends and colleagues to give us a listen. Here's Professor Hayden Shelby. Our guest this week is Hayden Shelby, assistant professor in the School of Planning at the University of Cincinnati, and we're going international again with a conversation about slum upgrading, collective finance, and community ownership and management in Bangkok, Thailand. Thanks for joining us, Professor Shelby, and welcome to the Housing Voice podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I've, uh, I've become a, ris- a listener as of late, so I'm happy to be here.
0: This we've said this multiple times, but I feel like this is our number one marketing strategy so far is just each person we interview is one new listener and they hopefully share with others. So even though obviously many of the challenges that Bangkok residents might face um, could be different from those here in the U.S. and other countries with more developed economies, I know that a lot of the questions we're going to be grappling with in this conversation are actually pretty similar to ones we're having here. Your abstract does a really great job, actually, of laying out what we'll be talking about. So let me just read the latter half of that right now. You say, quote, in this article, I offer a sympathetic critique of Ban Man Kong, the participatory slum upgrading program, by analyzing how this financial model actually plays out on the ground through an in-depth ethnographic study of the policy and its participants. I conclude that, despite the policy's intentions to empower communities through access to collective finance, many participants find themselves struggling with debt and living under a new form of financialized community that reshapes their social relations with neighbors and burdens them with the responsibility for financing and carrying out development desired by the state, end quote. A big emphasis is also on the question of whether this program is empowering residents or if it's actually just offloading the responsibilities of the state onto them, and there's not a sharp dividing line between those two realities. I should also note that as long as we have a Bangkok housing expert, we're going to call you that here, uh, we're going to learn all we can from you about this megacity's housing market and its urban planning and governance. So that's where we're headed. Professor Pavo Mankanen is my co-host this time. Happy New Year, Pavo.
2: Hey, happy new year, managing director of the Lewis Center Housing Initiative, Shane Phillips. <laughs> it's great to great to see you and welcome, Hayden. I'm really excited. This is I think this is the paper that has been fastest from learning about it to podcast so far. I just discovered <laughs> oh, it a few a few weeks ago, and I was so excited <laughs> because I've been long interested in in Cody and the Bon Mankong program. And I'm I'm really I, I love the sympathetic critique approach. Because a lot of the stuff that's been written about it is just kind of pure laudatory, not that it's critical. It's become a model. Yeah. It's and become it, and a it's, model. You know, and working in Hong Kong and in Indonesia, you hear a lot about this program. And so I think it's, it's great that you've done this, this research on it. So I'm excited to, to talk to you about it.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to, to share some, some thoughts.
2: So first,
0: we're going to go on our tour. And you've already informed me that we're going to be touring Bangkok this time. So tell us what we should see.
1: All right. So I am going to take you on a tour of what I consider sort of my neighborhood in, in Bangkok. Um, it's called the, it's along Ramkham Hang Road, uh, near Ramkham Hang University. It's to the eastern side of the city. And it's, it's not really super accessible by like SkyTrain. Um, but it's relatively proximate to a lot of the organizations I did my research with. Uh, and there are a few things I want to show you. So first of all, if you're coming from the central city, the easiest way to get there, because Bangkok traffic is terrible, is the canal boat. Uh, yeah. So you get on in the canal boat, and this is like, it's one of the hidden gems of Bangkok, uh, because first of all, it's very fast and efficient, but also it gives you this view of the city that you really feel like you're seeing the back of the city. Um, in a really interesting way. And you're, you're literally often looking at the backs of houses as you're going along. Uh, but there are also walkways along it. So you see people like going about their life. Um, and it's this great way to see like the everyday aspects of, of Bangkok living. So, uh, so you take the canal boat and you get off, uh, around Ramkampang University. And it's a university area, so there's lots of cool shops, um, lots of young people. But it's also close to the Sports Authority of Thailand, where all of the countries, well, a lot of the country's elite athletes are sort of housed and where they train. Mm-hmm. And the best part about this location between the Sports Authority and the university is that a couple of evenings a week, there is a fantastic night market. And at this market, you can get electronics, you can get clothing, you can get housing goods. But for for our purposes on this tour, you can get food from every part of the country sold oh. in this market. So you can get, you know, any type of uh, any style of fried rice, lots of curries, uh, plenty of mango and sticky rice, coconut ice cream, whatever you want. So I'm taking you. We We get our food and... This is the really fun part is that so we're near where all of the elite athletes are. And close to this market, there are uh, tikra courts. And for listeners who don't know what tikra is, it the best way to explain it is that it's volleyball. You play with your feet. <laughs> and the, it, there are these these balls. They're originally like, kind of like wicker balls, but some of them are plastic. And really skilled players actually do play this like volleyball on, on two sides of a court. And they can spike these, these balls with their feet. They actually do like hitch kicks up in the air and t- invert themselves and, and spike the ball. And it's a sport that I had never encountered before uh, spending time in Thailand. And it's uh, to get the chance to just sort of casually see people who are really, really good at it play. Um, that, that sort of combination of getting some food at the night market and watching like uh, pick up the crawl matches is like my favorite thing to do.
0: Yeah. That sounds amazing. I didn't tell Pavo this, but I went to Bangkok and Hanoi like four years ago and part mainly because of language barrier. I can barely remember like the names of any neighborhoods or anything, but the overwhelming takeaway for me was just the chaos of both cities. In, like, a good and a bad way, but it's just, and I'm sure this will come up when we're talking about the housing as well, it's just, it's, there does not seem to be planning going on at all in the city. I'm sure there's something happening, but... We'll get to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I, I, whenever I'm in a taxi and people ask me what I'm doing and I tell them that I, I study city planning, they're like, well, it's a good thing you're here. (laughs) I mean, the the, the irony
2: about that is that's what they say everywhere. I mean, that's what they say in LA too. That's (laughs) true. That's
1: absolutely true. You know, I'm sure people say that here as well. Um, but yeah, I think one of the, the, I mean, you know, the, the, what often looks like chaos, uh, is the fascinating thing to me about the city. It is, so full of life Mm -hmm. um and i like like i i discover something new absolutely every day that i'm walking around that city
0: yeah yeah i was just walking like 20 miles every day just seeing all i could okay so before we talk about the cooperative housing finance program evaluated in your paper we were hoping you could just give us an idea of what the housing policy landscape looks like in bangkok Pavo and I are starting, I think, from a very limited base here, so we'd be interested in just about anything you find interesting. In particular, I know we'd love to know your thoughts on David Dowell's articles about Bangkok, which we'll link to in the show notes, and what you think we should know about urban governance in Bangkok. Uh, Our U.S. listeners may have heard about the political unrest in Thailand, so some of that background may be helpful for understanding the context of your research paper and the government's Community Organizations Development Institute program or CODI, which uh, Pavo referenced earlier.
1: Yeah, uh, so I I think I will start by saying, I think Thailand has has had two claims to fame in the housing world over the past, let's say, forty years. Uh, one is Ban Man Kong that we're going to talk about today, but the other one was sort of as as an example of what in the, the 80s and 90s was known as the market-enabling approach to producing housing in, in developing countries. And, mm-hmm. and that's where uh, these, these papers by David Dowell come in. Um, so the, the idea here was that, so let, let's start back in, you know, the 1960s. Like a lot of places in the world, uh, Bangkok was rapidly urbanizing. The population was growing Um, there was, you know, growth in, in slum settlements and they experimented with a a few different methods that were around the world. They, in 1972, they created a national housing authority and had, you know, a, a similar experience to a lot of places. Just, they went over budget, didn't produce enough units. They weren't of quality that people wanted, not in the right location. But, what happened in, in, in Bangkok and in Thailand in general was that you have to remember that for one thing, for about 10 years, it was the fastest growing economy in the world from like the mid eighties mm. to the mid nineties. And what also happened during that time was that they really created this system of the system that could produce a lot of housing for the, by, by developers. So there were elements in which the, the regulations were by, relative standards, pretty transparent, not very onerous. Uh, they developed a, a financial system or, uh, that could finance develop uh, developer-built housing. Uh, and this all allowed them to just produce a whole lot of housing in the, in the private market. That changed the urban landscape quite a bit. So it went from being You know, a place where you had lots of shop houses in a central city and enabled a lot of sprawl. So you got, you know, some uh, what looked like classics, uh, you know, subdivisions further out on the periphery. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then later on uh, in that towards the 90s, you really Bangkok really started to become condo land. Could Um, you
0: before we before we get there, could you quickly define shop houses like what those look like?
1: Oh, yeah. So shop houses there, they kind of look like row. I mean, you might think of them as row houses. Um, the bottoms of them kind of have like often like garage door openers or something. Mm-hmm. But where people run shops or they might just have like a shop on the bottom. Literally, like there's a shop on the bottom and then people, Got people it. live on top. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So very what we what we would call mixed use um, mm-hmm. in planning speak. Yeah, so, so Bangkok, uh, was producing a lot of housing via this, this market system. Um, the market was enabled producing a lot of housing and, and in a, in a first study that, that David Dowell along with, I believe, uh, Shlomo Angel, um, within the research at least, uh, they they found that, you know, this was, I think as they put in an efficiently performing housing market, um, that land prices weren't increasing that greatly, a lot was being produced, the production was starting to move down market, um, and the mm-hmm. prediction was I, I think that the, you know, slum uh the slum population would start to become a smaller and smaller percentage of of the overall population. And so it was held up as this example in a lot of ways. And I think that paper came out in like 89 or I think something. it was
0: 89 and there was a follow-up in 92.
1: In yeah. 92, yeah. And so in that just intervening few years, it's really interesting because he then comes in and, and, and the main, my main takeaway from that paper is, oh, actually the land prices are increasing a lot now. <laughs> and I think what that, what that paper really is catching... Is that Thailand or, and Bangkok in particular was at the beginning of a huge housing bubble. And mm. so, you know, fast forward and, and to, to condense a lot of very complicated stuff into a few sentences. That, that bubble, you know, Thailand, the economy is growing massively. People are pouring a lot of the money that's coming in into real estate. And in round ninety five, that bubble starts to burst. You start to see development companies going under, and yeah. this really presaged in you know nineteen ninety seven. Eventually, things get in bad condition. The government's forced to float the value of the baht. It collapses, and then in July we get uh, what in Thailand is called "wike tom yam gung" or the Tom Yam Gung crisis. After the famous, you know, sour, spicy soup, uh, which is sort <laughs> of a, a, I don't know, witty, at least a cheeky and self-deprecating way of, of saying what we call the East Asian financial crisis. So uh, I think that that period laid the foundation for a lot of the housing in Bangkok in the intervening decades. Um, there was obviously a slump where there are a lot of like ghost towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Bangkok. Um, but in, in recent years, you are increasingly seeing, you know, Bangkok emerging as this aspirational world-class city. Um, there are a lot of condos being developed. Still, still some, you know, so, some sprawl and things like that. But I think from the, the sort of high level, uh, of the, of housing, that's what it looks like. But I think it's also, it's important to note that the, some of the predictions of how, you know, the slum population would, you know, maybe either be absorbed, um, into as the, the market went, went down market, um, or that they become a smaller proportion of the, of the, of the urban population. That, that did come true to a certain extent. But there was a very stubborn population in, in in slum settlements. Around a million for for several or several decades um, in there, and that's mm-hmm. uh, that history if i haven't gone on too long already, I would love to give the history of what was actually going on in housing in those settlements
2: no, I think that's really important context, yeah yeah, and I was curious especially in terms of the land tenure of the of the and how varied they are in the in the different settlements, because you know in different countries slums are, are quote unquote slums right informal settlements right. arise you know, because of invasions or because of sales mm-hmm. and, and or it's government land. And so that really can structure interventions as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So and I should say I, I, I do use the term slum. I in full recognition that it is a stigmatized term. I use it for a couple of reasons. The first is that some of the groups that I worked with in my research use it themselves as as a reappropriation, as a political identity. But also, you know, some of these settlements do kind of meet the UN criteria for how they classify slum. And also some of the euphemisms for some like informal settlement don't necessarily always reflect the reality of how people occupy their land. Mm -hmm. So in Bangkok... What, what's kind of unique about Bangkok as opposed to places where you have like, you know, large scale land invasions or, or places like, you know, Dharavi and Mumbai, which are like cities within cities. Mm-hmm. Settlements in Bangkok are, are relatively dispersed throughout the city and throughout the urban region. Um, with the exception of, of Klangdoi, which is a fairly large settlement a lot of these settlements have anywhere from a couple of dozen households to a few hundred and there are several reasons for this some of it is is the geography of bangkok a lot of the settlements are along canals and the canals have kind of woven throughout the city some is uh because uh these some of the settlements actually were there before the city got to them
0: mhm as it expanded outward
1: Yeah, as the city expanded outward and, and this is true even in like relatively central parts of the city, that these settlements were actually there before the main, uh, uh, main effort to issue land titles in Bangkok even happened. There were these settlements were there Mm -hmm. and kind of the people just weren't the ones who ended up with the titles. But a, a lot of times these settlements, they, they happen with either like explicit written or sort of implicit permission of the landholder. Um, so people will come in and maybe they sometimes they pay a certain amount of rent. Sometimes they have verbal or a little bit of written permission. Uh, it's really common to have settlements on temples um on uh, or on different types of government land. So a lot of settlements are on uh you know the Crown Property Bureau, the State Railways of Thailand, the Treasury Department. Um these are all uh government entities that have a lot of settlements on their land. Uh so I think that is that is the main sort of if we're, if we're thinking about just the settlement patterns in Bangkok. And uh and so that that means that people have varying types of legal claims. To the land, mm-hmm. um, some of you know that with varying levels of formality over over time, some have gotten formal access to different types of utilities, water and electricity. Some haven't. Um, some have temporary uh, land re- or, or housing registrations. Some don't. So there's there's a lot of variability in there.
2: And I assume that implies variability in terms of the residents' kind of socioeconomic status as well
1: yeah that uh definitely so you might have someone who has informal land tenure but is like a, a government bureaucrat and is mm. is like working you know has has a formal formal job has has quite a bit of education right. uh It's not at all uh uncommon to have to have people with college educations and in fact a lot of some of the really successful communities in, that do Banh kong are are successful because they have educated people mm. uh living among them yeah interesting yeah.
0: Your paper is about this Ban Man Kong program or secure housing program, and it's responding to some specific gaps in what the public and private sector are providing. We've talked about sort of the the setting a little bit, but this program specifically, how does it work? What needs is it trying to address?
1: Yeah. So, in order to answer that, I, I have to go back a little bit. We need we need to get into some of what was going on in. Some slum communities throughout the 80s and 90s and what kind of was the the precursor uh, mm-hmm. to this. So you had in the in the 80s and 90s with with some of what was going on in housing and landing rising land prices, you had a lot of evictions going on. You had. Also, communities that were really coming together and trying to fight evictions—some on, on their own and really gaining gaining some strength and some ability—who
0: who is doing the evictions in this case? If there's not land titles involved,
1: so a lot of these, um, uh, so it, it could be government agencies. Um, that does not—that is less common than people who are private owners. Okay uh it's really hard to achieve um any type type of either either eviction delay or you know some of these like land sharing types of agreements that i can talk about it's a lot harder to do that with a private owner mm-hmm. they just they they're they're harder to to shame <laughs> um they're not as a politically accountable um yeah. they're, you they're, you have a lot more leverage when when the land owning or when the land owning agency is is a government entity But there, there was a lot of capacity that was being built in the, in these settlements, and it was happening through the residents themselves, but it was also happening through the growth of non-governmental organizations, of NGOs, which were being funded through efforts internationally to, to fund what was often thought of as good government, good governance. They were, which basically meaning that they, you know, in order to have a, a functioning democracy, you don't just want to like fund a central government. You want a whole civil society to be built up. So there right. was direct funding to NGOs. And in Thailand, this hit at a time when you had a lot of really idealistic young people, some of whom had really had cut their teeth in community based work as student activists. Some of whom were even in, in, you know, in, in exile in the forest with the Communist Party of Thailand in the 70s and, and came back and, and started, started these organizations. And so when, when you get to the, the 80s and the 90s, when some of the, the precursors to Banmun Kong were started, you had a lot of capacity there. So Banmun Kong it, itself, in terms of housing, what it's, what it's addressing is sort of the fact that the market never moved down market uh, enough to, mm-hmm. to house a lot of people who are living in these settlements. But, uh, also the government's, the, uh, efforts through the National Housing Authority to build was, uh, was like a lot of places. It, you know, it wasn't meeting the needs of, of people. And so what Kong attempts to do is through a huge conglomeration of entities that collaborate, it tries to bring communities together, um, gives them both a means of financing the development of new housing and communities, it gives them a means through which processes and, and, and assistance to negotiate legal forms of land tenure, and then in the process, and I think this is key for especially the people who are at the head of the organizations involved, it's not just about housing. You know, they are really right, trying right. to build up communities and, and to try in, in order to do sometimes different things, depending on the organization we're talking about. But I think that is the need. It is both about trying to get to do housing that is responsive to people's needs, um, but also about trying to really build up a civil society or a, a people's sector, depending on how you talk about
0: it. Could you walk us through the process of forming these these uh, cooperatives because it's like a whole series of steps and it's yeah it, it can be a high level summary but I think it's important that we understand and it explains how you end up with you know not just the housing side of things but also these other financial supports
1: yeah and and that's that's what really motivated my research project was that you know you ha- you've, I have you've have in a lot of the literature out there these high level summaries. But then it's like, how does that actually happen? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's and it's it's a it's a really onerous process. So communities or I should say settlements can come into Ban Man Kong through a variety of means. Sometimes it is because they are immediately being threatened with eviction um, and and they get kind of referred um to start the process. Sometimes it's because, you know, Cody or leaders ha- have have negotiated the possibility to do legal tenure on a government agency's land. And so the process of forming the communities then starts with that, you know, possibility of getting tenure there. So there's not like that immediate threat of eviction there. But what it all, what everything has in common is that they have to form a concrete community, not just like a sense of community, not just like your neighbors. Like they have to form this legal entity, and yeah. it, the way that they start to do that is through savings. So they have to save ten percent collectively of what they intend to borrow. Uh, they can borrow up to. Uh, it started at three hundred thousand baht. It's been you know increasing uh, over Which time. You say it is
0: about fifteen thousand dollars USD. It's, it's like roughly. I think it's about.
1: Ten, yeah, between okay. ten and fifteen. I'm not sure what it what the exchange rate would be right now. So they can they can borrow up to that amount, but they have to save that ten percent. Um, and once they've got that savings well underway. Then the people who are involved then have to register as a cooperative in almost all cases. And that in and of itself has several steps, and there have more steps have been involved as they've kind of realized that people need more education mm-hmm. uh, before they undertake this. Um, and then once they have the cooperative, the cooperative is then the entity that borrows the money for the upgrading from Cody, um, which Cody charges, I believe it's still 4%. And then from the cooperative, the cooperative on lends to the individual households, they usually charge an additional couple of percent um, of interest. So it's a shared interest rate um, and that interest covers the operating expenses of the different entities.
0: And and that's important because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, first, that's probably a better interest rate than you could get otherwise. And second... You probably couldn't even get a loan in the first place. In many cases, that's it's
1: it's yeah. primarily the latter. I think <laughs> yeah, as I, yeah. I talked to a a, a leader uh, when when they were first starting to get this going and looking at trying to get formal lenders, like and asking what the interest rate would be, they were like, well, it's a theoretical interest rate. Like, <laughs> just, they, you just wouldn't get an interest yeah, rate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so, and it is subsidized. These are soft loans. This is obviously, this is, um, th- there, there is, um, the, the interest rate is subsidized. And so that's actually, that, that sounds complicated enough, but that's actually the, the neat and clean version of it. What actually happens is in the process of doing this, you, you have to imagine, you know, what it's like to, to think about putting your money together with your neighbors, and then not just that, but going into debt with people. There's an enormous amount of trust that has to be created between people. There's an enormous amount of internal politics that happens about who's going to lead it, who's going to manage Mm it. Um, And there's at the beginning stages, there's often a lot of turnover, people will say they're going to do it, they'll get started, they'll pull out, as a cooperative starts to get up and going, um, or especially as a savings group starts to get up and going, people will be like, "Okay, well, I see this is happening. Um, I guess, I guess I'll join." And then there, are, there are cases where people might want to join, but they, you know, don't just don't have the ability to to put that kind of skin in the game.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can, I, I think about like if I were just trying to buy a home with a couple friends. Like the co- the complexity of that <laughs> That's already alone would already be you know like multiple people signing onto a mortgage. Like what happens if someone falls behind? Just mm-hmm. doing that with one friend would be daunting. So to do right. this yeah. with a so group doing of people who you of may barely know, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And it is, and it's important to to state that sometimes it is with people you barely know or don't know. Right. Um, what happens in in two of the case studies that 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 I focus on um in one case it was five different settlements came together and in another it was four so it was this select group of people from settlements who were had were threatened with immediate eviction and there were only you know a a dozen or you know a couple dozen people or or even just a handful from these different settlements who were all willing to do it but none of them had a critical mass and so either Cody Staff or these NGO organizers you know, facilitated them coming together. So in a lot of cases, those residents are actually taking this huge leap to become financially and eventually physically in space tied to people they don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is is a huge leap.
2: On this mechanics question, so you have a, a group of houses next to each other. Can some people participate and some people not participate? And how does that eventually work out?
1: That is like the million dollar question, I think. Um, when, when you're doing in, in situ or in place upgrading. Right. And I, I think what happens sometimes is I know in one of the, the, my case study communities, they, they had sort of divided the community. What they'll do is they'll divide the community into zones and they'll say, okay, like this zone is going to do it. And so sometimes that means that. Sometimes that means that, OK, this other group of people are, are never going to do it and we're just going to kind of like they're going to get pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means that people really get pressured yeah. to, to join this. There is sure. there's an enormous amount of, of pressure uh, when, you know, all the people around you are, are doing this and, and you're the holdout. Um, sometimes people are the holdouts because they're the powerful people in the community mm. and they're like, okay, well, maybe I can, you know, get some better terms or something. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, it, when you're doing it in, in place, it, that is a really hard thing to get you. There is a lot of pressure to get everybody on board.
2: Right. And there's and, no and, rule of, I mean, cause sometimes like with redevelopment of multifamily buildings, if you get 90% of the people to agree, then it happens. Um, in this case, I don't know if there's a rule rule like that, or the idea is that you would just try to get consensus, and if you can't, you know, I, I can. You, I just imagine a lot of informal mechanisms of pressuring people, and then maybe mm-hmm. even trying to kick people out or get new people into the neighborhood in order to make it all work.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's like so. I don't know of any like ninety percent rule in this mm. case, but I think like of all the all the possibilities you just listed, like it, it's like. You know, all of the above and to different degrees in different communities. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, like, uh, they're. There, there are mechanisms um, through which, you know, in, in the case where you have people who really can't do the saving and can't do the financial things, that they can build a central house. That's one mm. way that they can, like, pull people along who really, like, are, whether they're disabled or elderly or something, they can right. pull along. But, but yeah, there, there, is, there is a lot of pressure.
2: And people can participate to different degrees. So, you know, everyone doesn't have to be getting the same loan or, or do they all have to get the same amount?
1: So they don't all have to borrow the same amount. Um, the If people have, say, a lot of materials from their existing houses that they want to use for reconstruction, if they're mm-hmm. moving or if they're just reblocking, mm-hmm. they might not need, they're just kind of like adjusting things and they just right. need materials. So. So if they don't if they don't need a ton of uh if they can substitute either with their own labor or with materials that they already have, they don't need to take out that much money. Mm-hmm. There are also uh generally more than one housing model that they're that they build in a community. Mm-hmm. Uh often it will be like uh, like a, you know a row house versus freestanding or, or a single story or versus Two story, and you know they can they can borrow. One will be less expensive, and so they can borrow according to their need that way.
2: But and so that's the, well, was my next question too. Is there's my understanding is there's kind of a community agreed upon minimum quality level that all the new houses will have after. Yeah,
1: and so it, it's it's interesting, and I think even some of the main architects, uh, like literally and, and figuratively, architects <laughs> of, of, of the policy from the beginning have in in recent publications lamented that the the designs of the houses have become more sort of cookie cutter um but i
2: mean it's cheaper though so (laughs) (laughs) So you get a lot of cookies
1: (laughs) (laughs) it is but but there is there is a set design that people have to agree to to build to and it's not just like a minimum standard by the community because i think a lot of communities would agree to a much lower standard Mm. like they do have to like you know they have to meet building codes and things I like see. that. Yeah. Uh. Yep. So that that's often a, a big thing. But but it's interesting. You know, I I studied case studies. I specifically studied a couple that were older and who had gone through the process and were pretty much done. And then I studied newer ones. And the older ones, if you talk to the leaders about the design process of making their houses, you know, they just light up. Mm. And I think you know Cody was really into making these participatory and using all kinds of materials and letting people kind of imagine their you know their new homes and their new futures Mm -hmm. and the newer ones were kind of handed options and the one the one community even like the the designs they were given didn't show where the door was and they were they were just like no like we and they and they started to find ways that they they might hire you know another architect to re to redo it. So, yeah, so those are those are some of the things that I think have have changed uh, over time, um, right. along with the the scale of the program.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, from the perspective of the government, what are they trying to achieve? Like, what are they getting out of this program?
1: So it's it's hard to talk about the Thai government. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, for a number of reasons, it's, it's politically hard, uh, but also, um, you know, the government in, so the face of this program is from the government end is Cody. Cody, uh, Cody is often called a quasi-governmental or parastatal or things like that. But I, I think from the perspective of a lot of people I talk to, to it, they are the a government entity in a lot of really important ways. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. I think, from higher levels of government, if, if we're talking about the land owning agencies, they are getting housing on this land that, for one thing, looks nicer. Um, there is, there is definitely a beautification aspect to this particularly when you talk start talking about settlements along canals
2: yeah that's that was kind of you mentioned the canal tour and it often yeah, showed poor quality housing in the past yeah
1: right? bangkok is was at, at at one point it has in multiple places throughout time been been called the venice of the east and that is definitely something that that it that they're trying to reclaim with with some canal but there's another side of the canal redevelopment um which is which which is uh sort of climate change related in 2011 there were massive floods now the reasons for those were quite political as to you know what what measures were taken to prevent which areas from flooding versus not flooding um but that's one of the you know one of the reasons that that some of the uh, especially a new version of this is taking place so i i think that's that's part of it um and the other is that you know it, it is it is in the interest of, of a of a government of a state to have people Housed well for all kinds of reasons, and this is a way. Yes, there are subsidies involved. There are grants for infrastructure um, and other things. There are uh, the, the interest rates are subsidized, but a whole lot of the cost is being shared by communities themselves. It is a very cost-effective way mm-hmm. to create housing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you make a point here that you know maybe this is more the appeal to the residents but there's this element of sort of legitimating them or or formalizing them bringing them into the formal economy which i think is is a benefit both to the residents and the government itself i think they would see that as as a goal of theirs as well
1: yeah i mean be, being able to like count people um <laughs> and also for the residents being counted yeah. uh those those are goals that that both sets of people can have
2: yeah it's funny that you you mentioned the kind of multiple goals it's trying to achieve as but that's something that is very common in housing policy right especially oh, yeah. kind of when dealing with mm-hmm. quote unquote slum areas and i think you know for people that haven't looked into this area of research or, or kind of policy inquiry before you know thinking about this compared to other ways governments try to deal with a neighborhood on the side of a canal with poor housing conditions right and you think about like government resettlement programs into public housing as like being maybe the the least successful version and so some form of community involved redevelopment is generally kind of what works the best but it's it's just complicated right there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of issues you have to deal with
1: yeah it's complicated and especially you know there a lot of what I what I emphasize and what I'm trying to pushback in this article is that i I think a lot of the literature around this and and similar models has been on the potential empowering impacts of collective finance Mm -hmm. that that by offering people the chance to manage finances collectively um to create resources that that this is like a, a catalyst of community empowerment and of communities being able to you know Participate politically because they have more financial resources or it's like the glue that keeps people together. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I want to push back against that because I think that there are aspects of this program, um, especially when people are connected with other communities and especially when they, they come together to, you know, fight or stave off eviction or when they work with wider networks to push for policy changes. There are aspects of this that can, that are really empowering and What I have seen of how people go about managing these collective assets and debts, um, it's complicated. It's stressful. It puts them in positions relative to their neighbors that they may not want to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, and, and, and it is like we have to recognize that even if this maybe is better than relocation to, you know, some public housing far away from their original land, um, they are taking on the fin- some of the financial burden mm-hmm. and, and and there is pressure it is in multiple people's interests for them to do that.
0: right. yeah, I, I think you you see some of that same motivation here in the US with things like community land trusts and tenant opportunity to purchase programs, these kinds of things. Um, you started to get at this just a moment ago. In the paper, you set up what I think is a really important contrast between empowerment and responsabilization. Could you explain that distinction for our listeners and maybe kind of talk about how that manifests in in this program?
1: So I, I think we often think of empowerment as like, maybe, you know, this is a slippery term, and it's, it, it gets especially slippery because it gets it gets applied to this program, even though there's not a great translation in Thai for it, which is kind <laughs> of funny. Um, but, you know, empowerment it I think of as, like, increasing your ability to do something. It's saying, like, you can do this or we can do this. And then when something slips into responsabilization, it's like, oh, we, we have to do this. <laughs> right. So so the program isn't just allowing people to do certain things, including and especially the management of financings. Um, it is requiring them to do it.
0: It's like their only path to doing this.
1: Yeah. and And... It's their only path to doing this particular thing. And also yeah. we have to recognize that, you know, people aren't, this is a voluntary program in, at the end of the day, but people are, when they choose to do this program, they are operating within a very circumscribed set of choices. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where I think responsabilization comes into play is that you know, they they're they're doing this program and they are taking on a lot of risk for themselves, uh, sometimes for in the case of leaders for their community members, and then often uh in 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 cases where the the development is really being pushed from you know any number of state agencies.
2: What I just on that I was I was wondering what you thought about I mean a counterfactual would be a similar program but without the community part and instead just each person would have a direct relationship or each household with the government agency that was doing the similar kind of lending um, I guess it's <laughs> we're entering into gross speculation here but how do you think that would change the way this works or even I was thinking you know it might be in a in a, in, a, in a better situation give communities the option of doing it through a community cooperative, or one-on-one with the government. Right.
1: Yeah. So it's hard to speculate. I I think that some people might prefer that, but it's important to realize, well, so a couple points. One is that the finance works in part because the risk is reduced because you are relying on people's social capital Mm -hmm. to ensure repayment. You are relying on social pressure. That is, in a sense, sort of collateralizing people's right. social capital. That that is one of the reasons that the finance works.
2: The, the community mm-hmm. pressure subsidy. Yes.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Whereas, if it was just you in a relationship with the government, if you walked
2: away, that would be between you and the government. No one's really gonna. And it would be you know, it would be harder for them to it would be harder for them to go after you. Yeah. Less politically. Tenable. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and, and and I know in in one of my case studies there is a house that someone just walked away from, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it still happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also important to think about why why collective tenure, um, and and this gets to a couple of things. First is just the the debates around titling, mm-hmm. um, and so one of the re- one of the reasons that Van Kong I think is and this model is popular is that for. A, for a while, there was this idea that, you know, famously associated with Hernando de Soto that like all, all, all people needed in these informal environments was like an individual title and that would, you know, uh, awaken dead capital and they would mm-hmm. have these financial resources and be pulled into the fo- formal market. And that got critiqued both, both logically and with some evidence that, you know, when you give somebody an individual title, now that the increased value that that, uh, that that brings to that land and to that house will actually, if, if the person is very poor, the value of that, that new asset will be greater to them than the value of that place as a home and they'll sell and basically be displaced by market forces. So that's one mm-hmm. of the motivations for having this be a collective thing. But I mean, I think beyond that and, and the reason I say, like, I, I remain despite my critique sympathetic to this program and others like it is, is that it is, like, it's this way of imagining a way of being in the city outside of private property. Um, you know, you can call it the commons, you can call it what, what you like, but it, but I, like I said, like, it's, you know, housing policies are rarely about housing, and especially these type of, of collective housing policies, they're, they're not just about producing housing, they're about producing different, different ways of life, different, uh, different ways of, of, of being in the city. So, I think that's, uh, even though I think that I, I think you are correct that there are probably, pe- there are probably actually lots of people going through this program who would say like, can you just give me a loan? Can I just <laughs> do this on my own? I, I think it on the financial side, there are, the people would, people would object to that. Um, but then also I think at least from the higher levels of the people running, running the organizations involved. Um, That wouldn't like meet the goals and it wouldn't have the government backing because like the community aspect is actually also a really big part of why people hire in the government like really like this.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I really brings up a side tangent that I won't get into, but about how kind of low-income communities in slums are forced to do this, but then rich communities aren't. Mm-hmm. But what I did want to... <laughs> but I, I, I think that is worth talking about. Like, like that's, yeah, yeah, That's it what is. I'm
0: interested in is this idea of like, I don't know, like... Paternalistic community want...
2: empowerment.
0: Well, maybe it's like the distinction between the collective aspect of this and the participatory aspect of it like those aren't necessarily the same thing mm. and the participatory part maybe seems like the bigger burden and it's also an opportunity for many people but it's sort of like forcing everyone to be part of an HOA and like HOAs are famously terrible and but some people are really <laughs> into it because they like leading an HOA and being that person but those of us who have been, you know, part of a volunteer organization or an HOA or whatever know that the person who, like, speaks up and wants to lead is not necessarily the most competent <laughs> oh. person all the time. Oh. So I'm just, I, I I just don't know, like, it's, I, I think your point, Pablo, about, like, having the option for people, if you could do that without forcing it would be ideal. But, you know, hated your point about how you kind of lose that social pressure, maybe. I'm not sure you can totally cleave away the collective part from the participatory. They seem, you know, kind of overlapping yeah. in some ways.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I have thought about this a lot. And I, I think at the end of the day, you know, I I come away from this particular program. And I think a lot of, you know, whether we're thinking about community land trusts or, or limited equity co-ops, um, thinking that, um, you know, I think there are really, I think they're a really great option for some people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think in what, what you have to understand then about Banman Kong is it has always purported to be the scalable version of all of this. Like mm-hmm. the, the initial, it, it, it has never reached the like initial projections that it wanted for the first five years, but it's reached, you know, 113,000 households, I think as of the most recent report you know, much higher if you consider some of the
0: sister yeah, programs that, that's an important context we didn't share yeah this is a yeah, really huge program it's not it's just really like huge five program. communities or something and yeah. the
1: ambitions in the next 20 years are to grow it like four or five fold mm-hmm. but i think and, and and this this idea is not mine i have to i have to credit um eli elinoff with this who who has also studied not Ban Man Kong per se um but has done some really excellent research that involves ab- about sort of local democracy and the politics of citizenship that takes place in a, in, a, in a community going through Ban Khong um is that the, you know this collective uh aspect it it creates this form of differentiated citizenship <laughs> you know if if we conceive of different ways of having rights in the city of being associated with property you have, you know, wealthier people who can, who can do all of these things on their own, but, uh, poor people can only do it collectively. And, and there's this, you know, he has a great, a great quote in his, his book, which I will plug with Citizen Designs came out this year with University of Hawaii Press, where one of the people who's going through it is thinking about, you know, not doing it and says they want to like upgrade their status to be an individual. Mm. Um, that's like their ambition in life. And, and yeah, like, I I I think people people feel that, and and even even some of the organizers who have more radical ideals around that, um, the communities that are associated with that, you know, people people feel a, a great deal of ambivalence.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, so where I I wanted to go before that useful tangent was a, <laughs> was very much connected to this, and it's the the limited equity part of this, right? Because you could have the same program. But at the end of the process, you're allowed to sell it on the market. Right. And that mm-hmm. would that would make everything work probably differently. In this case, you can't, right? So am I understanding it correctly that if you want to move, you can sell, but at a price that the collective determines? And, yeah. and do people do that? And what are those prices generally like?
1: Yeah. I I I am a little limited in how much I can speak to this. So I I I know in in the sort of bylaws of a co- of the cooperative that I've looked at, there isn't like how you might have in a community land trust, like a set you know formula mm-hmm. for this. That it really is you know it's it's determined by by a vote and by the by the committee and by the collective. I think the ambition of a lot of people, at least at the high level, um, is that this is like a a, a more permanent way that uh, of being together. But I think when, when the, when the loans are paid off, they're 15 year terms. To my knowledge, they have the option of dissolving the cooperative. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah. I was curious about that. Like once, like if you were to sell, does the buyer take on some kind of special responsibilities to the collective? Or is it like, if the loan is paid, you're kind of, you can wash your hands of it and just kind of live your life. So
1: they, they would, ha- if they did that, they would, they would have to, you know, split the deed individually. Um, this is, I, I, you know, maybe, maybe other people know more, more, and more details about this than, than I do. But when I finished my fieldwork, which was in 2018, that was exactly 15 years after Ban Makong started in earnest oh, in wow. 2003. Now, some pilot programs were before that. So there were some communities as I was there that were kind of coming coming to the end of their repayment period. And I'm not entirely sure none of them were, I didn't do case studies of any of them, but I think in probably, you know, well, maybe not by now because COVID has, you know, that Cody did pause repayments for COVID Mm. reasons. So, but I think like from, from now in the next few years, there are going to be a lot of communities that are uh, coming to the end of their repayment periods. And it, it's an open question as, as to what they do, um, whether they choose to stay together, whether they, you know, choose to split their deeds. But, but there's not the, that intention, at least in this program. Like I believe in the community mortgage program in the Philippines, it's like, it's like the intention of the program to, to my understanding that they're going to individualize the titles. Mm. Um, that is, yeah. that is not like set here.
0: I mean, on this, on the, the you know, limited sales prices, I know we don't have all the details on this, but I was thinking about this as well, where like, again, thinking about a, a US context, something like a community land trust that always entails some kind of public funding and usually pretty substantial funding where it's, you know, the homes are purchased and because grants were involved, the price, you know, it sells for less than it. Otherwise, would to a uh, you know lower moderate income buyer, and they can only sell it at a you know slightly inflated rate rather than the market price, uh, and that makes sense because it was public money and they want to get the most out of it that they can. This is a little different where there is the subsidy on like the interest rate, maybe, and maybe they're eating some losses on loans that don't get paid back, but like it is largely shouldered by the households themselves, and these are pretty poor households mostly, and so. On the one hand, they're shouldering all the risk, or much of the risk, but the upside is really limited, and so they can't just like sell if they've been successful. It just seems like, I mean, a, a great deal for <laughs> for the government anyway, for Bangkok to like have have put all this responsibility on on these these households and settlements, and yet if it fails, it's really on on those households as well. Um, but if it succeeds, like that's future you know, high quality housing, and it's, and it's affordable, and all these positive things that benefit society kind of more broadly.
1: Yeah, I ha- I have really kind of mixed feelings about this on I think, and, and I think a lot of, <laughs> I think that's because the people I saw going through the process sometimes have have mixed feelings about this. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I think for one that I, you know, I, I didn't see this in any of my case study communities, but I know it has been a concern among like, Cody staff and other observers I talked to that, you know, informally, people are kind of selling um, and Mm. and getting some kind of profit off. And they can get some kind of profit, like the the price agreed to can be like, you know, give them something.
0: Well, it does seem I mean, a 15 year term, people move a lot, like, (laughs) Yeah. And for everyone yeah. to commit to living there for fifteen years at least just seems yeah. totally. Oh yeah, and, and people you know. people
1: do get replaced and one of yeah. one of the challenges and one of the reasons and, and this did happen, I think, in one of my communities where they um, you know, people people leave basically get kicked out because they fall behind. Like and there's mm-hmm. but when they want someone to come in, they need somebody then who can like make up those payments too. So that necessarily Mm. means that a wealthier person is coming Mm. in. Yeah. But I think too, it's, it's important to realize what people are investing in is, is not, it is, it is a status. It is, it is a nicer house um, that is important to some people. And I, I, you know, I have this very distinct memory from field work where I was, I was talking to one of the, the leaders of a community and she was, she was not having a good day. Um, you know, people were not paying, she was trying to enforce late fees, <clears throat> people were upset with her. Um, and, and I asked her, you know, why, why are you doing this? And this was in her, you know, her, her this is, was pre-eviction. She was in her, you know, kind of wooden self-built house along a canal. And then she just gestured to her daughters and she said for them. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that was enough for her because after, you know, after 15 years, you know, it, it's it's theirs. You know, there there's a place, there's a yeah. there's a safe, steady place to live. And I think I think it is important. It, w- it was interesting. I on a, on a totally other note, I was recently reading the most recent Cody annual report, and and they are trying to kind of I don't know if this is just to like drum up support, but but trying to come up with like the actual value that has accrued. To some of the some of the land um, and, and and potentially some of the people, so I think there are movements in that direction too. But I think people, you know, people people do this for non non monetary reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think we're just about out of time here. But is there anything we missed? I know we had even more questions in our in our list. So there's just so much to cover. But is there anything like key that you wanted to talk about before we go?
1: Yeah, I well, I guess. I think to close it up, I, I, when it comes down to the way I've been thinking about, you know, the, this program and community led processes, you know, a lot of people can look at these sorts of things and see their politics reflected back at them. Um, you know, from the left, this looks like, you know, an alternative to the market. From, you know, other positions, it looks like an alternative to state provision. Um, and I think my, my concern is that, in this paper, at least, is when when we celebrate sort of the community managed finance part, we start to celebrate it going away, that it becoming that that sort of that that alternative to the state part. Um, and I think when we look at these types of programs, we need to ask ourselves: is is participating in them acting as a way of people demanding more resources from the state of really gaining collective power, or is it is it acting as as a substitute for for redistribution of resources? And I think sometimes you you can't tell the answer to that just by looking at a model um you have to see how it's playing out on the ground
0: yeah you have a you have a quote that i I made a note of um about how this blurs the boundaries between radical alternatives to the market and neoliberal alternatives to the state, which I think is a really like astute way of putting this so for the last question. I, we, we usually ask this, but I'm especially interested this time because you were in Bangkok for years, but now you're back. What's next for you?
1: Oh, um, the, the future of research on this in particular is is quite up in the air and COVID, you know, making this, this sort of thing especially difficult. But, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm in Cincinnati now. I, I'm back in the U.S. and, and I, am, I am still really interested in these collective ways of holding land. Um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, I, I, I did a, presented a paper at a conference in the fall, um, kind of doing a lit review, uh, and looking at different, uh, models of collective tenure around the world and thinking about, you know, how, how they're the same, how they're different, how they're in conversation with one another. So, uh, I'm interested in thinking about the implications of, of different institutional arrangements, uh, on these things, but, but I'm also really interested in Collective tenure as traveling policy, and and the ways in which people are sharing knowledge about it, and how what it is that we choose to be the things that are replicable, and whether those are the right things. Um, so the, I think that's 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 definitely one answer as well where I'm going, as well as you know getting getting involved in in housing stuff in Cincinnati and and understanding what's going on here.
2: Yeah, and can I just jump in and say? Uh more than most of the papers i'd highly recommend reading this one because there is a lot that we didn't get into i mean we didn't even talk about the the patriarchy element and the gender nature of work and then the whole policy mobility stuff you just brought up about how this became a model that other countries are are trying to adopt and the asian coalition for housing rights trying to trying to export so i think i would recommend to listeners go check out the paper
1: thank you very much and I, i recommend the podcast (laughs)
2: <laughs> Hayden Shelby, thanks for
0: being on the show Thank you very much Thanks You can read more about Professor Shelby's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website lewis.ucla.edu The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter I am on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips and Pavo is there at El Pavo Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time